Hello to all of you who have decided to press play. I'm Jonathan. And I'm Jeremy. And we are the Evangelicals. And we just want to welcome you to episode six. That's right, six. Six. It's hard to believe. Uh, I think I've heard it before. You start on this journey and you never know where it's going to take you. But here we are. And um, we're so thankful for all of you who listen, for people who give us feedback about how uh, and the podcast is making you think, is making you um, kind of grapple with with thoughts, which I think is is the goal of what we would hope this would do for for all people. And so thank you. I want to remind you that you can find us on Twitter at Jonathan Berkey and at Thompson7Jeremy. And uh, we'd love to connect uh, with you. And once again, just hear some feedback about uh, maybe even things you'd like us to, to discuss or, or issues that, that we could cover. But also it's just helpful to know that, that uh, this is helping people and uh, once again, making them think about life. We hope that today's episode is one that hits home with everybody. But today we're talking about the meaning of life. And in our society, we are having uh, really a crisis of meaning, a crisis of understanding what's at the core of life. What's the purpose of life? What is the meaning of life? And we're, we're a people that are so confused about life, we are terminating life. Uh, we're incredibly suicidal. We kill thousands of people through abortion, through euthanizing our elderly. And I think that as a Christian subculture within our greater society, I think that we could all be helped by a greater understanding of the urgency, the necessity, the purpose, and the meaning of our lives. And so today we're talking about the meaning of life. Meaning of life. And, and it's been in the news a, a lot recently with the whole Supreme Court justice and, and, and Christians going to bat. I'm not saying whether you should or shouldn't. I'm just saying it's, it's this, this pro-life issue has been a key component of that. And, and I think sometimes we, we sell what it means to be pro-life to be very short. Um, so we want to start with a passage today, a scripture that, that talks about Jesus. And Jesus has just entered Jericho. Uh, the, for the Passion Week, he's come in on a donkey, which kind of blew the minds of all the people who were watching. Um, and, and the very first thing he does, he's he's setting the course for what this week is, I think, and what his life is is about and what this week is ultimately going to be about. And he, so he enters the temple. He comes in and, and people get confused because it says he's very angry. And uh, he starts flipping tables and, and turning the tables over of the people who are selling the sacrifices for the people coming in to make sacrifice. And I think a lot of times in the past, I know in my history, this passage has been turned into, well, you can't buy and sell in the sanctuary, or you can't buy and sell. And yeah, no, then, no Girl Scout cookies on Sundays. Exactly. Not sell those Girl Scout cookies on Sunday. We can step outside the sanctuary yeah, right. and make a purchase. We just can't do it in the sanctuary. Right. And so... But I think if we, we have to continue to read the story to really understand what made the people upset, and we think that it's because Jesus turned over their tables, but the very next verse says, the blind and the lame and the children came into the temple and Jesus healed them. 
And then the children started singing praise to Jesus. Uh, Blessed is he who comes, the son of David. This is Matthew's account, right? Matthew chapter 22. That's exactly right. Matthew 22. And and it says the Pharisee says, do you hear what they're saying? Do you hear what they're singing? And in essence, they are are questioning whether Jesus really is who who the children say he he is, who they're singing and praising him to be. And um, and it says that then there's this line that says the Pharisees became very indignant. And I think what Jesus is really trying to show the people of God, the Israelites and the Pharisees, is they had this system uh, set up about the temple, about who could come into the temple, about who wasn't allowed to come into the temple. Uh, there was even sections that you could maybe come this far, but you couldn't go. And the, and the the way the temple was structured is that the center was where the Holy of Holies was. And so as you got closer to that, it became harder or it, it, maybe more difficult to to gain access to that part of the temple. And so therefore what Jesus is doing is he's, he's turning over these tables and he's allowing all the people who weren't allowed to be in that part of the temple to offer sacrifice. They weren't allowed to be in that section of the temple. He lets them in. And this drives the Pharisees crazy because they're unclean. They shouldn't be there. They, in their world, they are defiling the temple and making the temple less than what they think it should be. And Jesus is saying, you're missing the purpose of what life was to be about. Uh, as a follower of, of me, as a follower of Yahweh, as a follower of God, our hearts are to always be breaking for those on the outside, the marginal, the, out, the, the, the outcast. And you are looking at them and saying, you have to stay on the outside. Their life isn't as important. It's not as great. They can't come this far into the temple. And what I am telling you is you've made this temple a den of robbers and thieves and where people who supposedly are good enough to come to the middle, supposedly good enough to get further into the temple, um, are actually the ones who are uh, turning people away from the very God that they claim to be serving. You know, that really puts that passage in conversation with the crucifixion story of Matthew, where the the Holy of Holies, the curtain, according to Matthew, when Jesus died on the cross, was split in two from top to bottom, really kind of opening up, unleashing the presence of God in a metaphorical way, in a very powerful way on the world. I I think that one of the things that is powerful about the comments that you just brought up is really this idea that it's really our perception of God as people of faith that informs and enhances or limits our understanding of the meaning of life. There's a... um, more recent text that a lot of people cite when asked the question for Christians, what's the meaning of life? And it's the Westminster Catechism of the late or the mid 17th century. And the Westminster Catechism was a document. There's a short version, a long version to help people understand kind of what was the essence of Christian living. And the very first question of the Westminster Catechism is this, what is the chief and highest end of man? This was not written in a very gender-neutral time. So the question could be, what's the, high, what's the chief and highest end of, of people, of humanity? And the answer to that question in the Westminster Catechism is this, that man's chief and highest end is to glorify God and fully to enjoy him forever. And for me, as I've heard people, when I was younger, as I would hear people quote this as kind of the point of life, it always seemed like a lacking definition of meaning to me. And I think, I think that the reason that it was lacking to me is because of 
the category that it put God in or the, of the way that it defined God's nature. And so I want to go back to the very beginning and just talk for a second about what we find out about the very nature of God from creation, okay? So according to the Westminster Catechism, our highest end is to glorify God, which would imply that God wants to receive glory. The God that we find at creation is one that is all that there is, presiding over the nothingness, presiding over the abyss. So at the very beginning, God is all that there is on the iTunes chart. He's the number one hit. God is it. No competition. No. And if God were a narcissist, existence would be as perfect as it could possibly be. If God was a glory hoarder, if God was interested in God's self primarily, that would be it. That would be existence. But what the scripture tells us, what Genesis tells us, is that in that nothingness, into that nothingness, God speaks and he creates. And God ceases to be the only thing that exists by virtue of creating, which is in itself a very selfless act. And so God speaks and God creates. Furthermore, he creates humans in his image. Essentially, God creates competing gods with God's self by creating others in God's image and giving them the ability to disobey him from the very beginning. To reject him. I mean, how much more selfless could one be? Not only that, but God doesn't create a utilitarian universe, one that's just served, one that just serves functions, but God creates color. God creates flavor. As a musician, I would like to believe God creates music. All of those things really in a utilitarian understanding of the way that the universe, the universe is set up, they make no difference. They have no meaning. But God created a universe with a value system that was very other than the value system of our current society. And so I think as bef- at the very outset of this conversation, we're talking about Jesus in the temple railing against religious people and their understanding of the heart of meaning for religious life. I want to just challenge us to say that, you know what? Maybe we've missed some of the aspects of God's inherent character. And maybe it's a misconception of God as Jesus was kicking against 2000 years ago. Maybe it's still a misconception of God that is misguiding us as a society keeping us from understanding the deeper and richer meaning of our lives. I think that I think that as you journey through the Old Testament, let's say, we are we're, we're in our church going through the Bible kind of chronologically and it's so interesting to hear some of these people who have really not read the Old Testament before, and they are just having these big, huge issues with the God that is presented in the Old Testament. And how could God 
almost kill Moses and how could God tell people to walk through the camp and kill other Israelites and kill each other? And, and they're just having this difficult time in their, their minds to reconcile this God of the Old Testament when we see who Jesus is in the New Testament. And, and it makes me understand why a lot of times pastors are like, well, we'll just not worry about the Old Testament and I'll just preach the New Testament. And so what I tried to tell them is I said, that your struggle is no different than people have been struggling with, that the Israelites struggled with, I feel like, yes. a long time ago. Yes. And I think that what we have to understand is we have to interpret these Old Testament passages in light of who Jesus is that the Israelites were trying to understand who this God was and maybe in there trying to understand who he was had misconceptions initially, uh, why Abraham would would just not even question why he should sacrifice Isaac was because in that culture, that was what was accepted. And God said, no, that's not who I am. I no longer desire or require child sacrifice. And so they are learning who this God is, who this Yahweh is in the midst of a culture that they lived in. That, that he was speaking something totally different. The disciples asked Jesus, show us God. And Jesus is like, what are you talking about? You're looking at, at, at who God is right here. Like, like me living, the way I'm living, the things that I'm saying, that's who God is. And so we get a better picture through Jesus about who God was the whole entire time. And uh, and so, yeah, we... we we, we conceptualize and we have images, and sometimes the images of God are more about my beliefs than they are even about who God is and the nature of who he is. Um, and, and we have to, I think, really understand who Jesus was to get a better picture of how we should then live and how we should then think and how we should view people and how we should view society and the understanding of who God is through Jesus. I want to talk about another story in the New Testament that I think has great implications for our understanding of the meaning of life. And it's the story in John 9 where Jesus and his disciples come upon a man who was blind from birth. This is John 9, verse 2. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So the conception is, the reason that bad things happen to people is because people have done bad things. They've sinned. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. And I'm reading the NIV, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. That's one translation of this verse. And that's really the popular one that I grew up hearing was that what Jesus was saying is, this man was born bl born blind for a reason right. in the kind of pop theology that everything happens for a reason. Sure. But that's not necessarily what Jesus says here, what the author in the Greek says here. This can also be translated to say, neither this man or his parents sinned, just as a statement by itself. And then Jesus says, but so that the work of God might be displayed in him as long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Essentially, Jesus doesn't give an answer for why bad things happen to people or why this man had a physical disability, but he says, this man is blind and we've got to do the work of God. And this is the meaning of our lives. We 
I'm not going to, Jesus essentially says, I'm not going to give you a reason for why this has happened, but we are going to make meaning in this moment. As long as it is day, we must do the work of the one that sent me. And this is Jesus's response when, pe- when the disciples come to him with a very popular question of theodicy. Why did this bad thing happen? And I think as we journey through life, that question comes up again and again and again, specifically, but not exclusively, but specifically when you're talking about people with, with disabilities, where they be, whether they be physical or intellectual or um, if there's any other variety. And I think that as we journey with people, um, I, I am very fortunate to to have people with disabilities um, a part of my life. My wife works at a facility that works with people with disabilities, um, both physical and intellectual. Um, and she is the head of Special Olympics for Pauling County, Ohio. And so I get to coach a basketball team of, of young young ones who aren't good enough to play on the school team, aren't can't make the cut. And, and so uh, we get to welcome them with open arms and say, yeah, of course you can come play basketball. And um, so I think that as we, we look at people with disability, our natural inclination is to think, we need to pray that God would heal them so that they can get back and live life like everybody else, rather than looking at their situation as one of saying, how might God use them exactly as they are? How, how could we view them as people that God created in his image just like they are? And, and rather than thinking, oh man, how terrible, and if, don't they probably wish they were like everybody else, what might a, a perspective of life, a perspective of the meaning of life, how would we look at them and say, how can they, how can they live into the desired purpose that God has created them for exactly like they are, rather than thinking they are, they are somehow less than God would have wanted for them. They are somehow less than than being able to live into that purpose, that meaning, that calling that God might even have for them in their life. Well, and this is a problem in our age of wonderful medical technology is that we really are in an age of aspiring and hoping to do away with a lot of things that ail people individually. And I'm all about medical progress. I really am. I think that it's miraculous, a lot of the things that are happening in medical science. But life does not get meaning the moment that there's a biological fix to a perceived biological issue. Yeah, right. That is not when life receives its meaning. Right. Life receives its meaning at the moment of creation when God breathes life into it. And as Christians, I, we, we really have a, we have a hard time wrapping our minds around meaning and purpose. And I think that's because we are so utilitarian we everything we feel like everything has to have a purpose everything and and a purpose with a gain so like so like i the reason that i have um the reason that i have limbs or the reason that i have a mind or the reason that i have any any of the parts of my physical body would be defined by the the purpose that they serve the utility that they serve me this is just the kind of way that we popularly in the west understand life we are not satisfied with life being 
simply that life being um stillness enjoying life we have we've we've become so distracted by the priorities of a secular society that we don't know what to do we don't know how to define life for people as able-bodied able-minded people that look different than us or act different than us or aren't able to engage in what we call regular society in the same way that we are. If you look at the the whole of Scripture, it seems again and again and again, and it seems to be the story of the Bible as God takes these imperfect people who can't do something in their own strength and does something extraordinary with them. And, and in our society, like you said, is it's all about the people that, that are the smartest and the strongest and the the best, the bravest, the the most intellectual, the one who can get the 4.0 and go on to college. And, you know, I even think of a, a story in in the book of Judges about this guy named Ehud that we don't talk a lot about, who was considered to be a left-handed judge. And and in that day, being left-handed was was a, a, a terrible thing. And, and the Hebrew kind of even gives rise to maybe his right hand was even maimed or deformed on some level. So he was left-handed. And and this is who God calls that he's going to deliver his people. And what's so cool about the story is they go into the king. And back then, if you were right-handed, your sword would be on your left side so that you could reach over and grab it and bring it out. Well, when they come through the security check, whatever that meant back in those days, they probably patted down the guy's right side. But because he was left-handed, his sword would have been on his right side. And so he was able to get past where he needed to be in order to defeat the king. And it was all because of what the, that culture at the time would have looked and said was a disability. And God used that to free, bring freedom to his people. And so God used him, not in spite of, but almost because of his disability to do something great and extraordinary. And once again, to bring freedom to his people from the king who was oppressing them at the time. I love that story. I love that story because it's it's a surprising story. Yeah. It's a story of someone that, like you said, society would look down upon, but who does who does something extraordinary, but that no one would expect. And the fact of the matter is, so much of our lives is expectation. Yeah. And in our current culture, we are obsessed with winning. We're obsessed with being on the top. We're obsessed with being successful. And our lives begin to lack meaning in our own minds when we stop winning, when we don't get the girl, when we don't win the big game, when we don't get the promotion. We feel like our lives lack in meaning. We look at our lives as mediums through which to to win to to get to the top and uh in the church has been talking for centuries about the meaning of life by using the word vocation a lot of when, when we when we meet somebody on the street a lot of t- one of our first questions is often what do you do yeah. and we usually answer that question with an occupational answer I stay at home with my kids. I'm a pastor. I'm a teacher. I'm a lawyer. But for those of us who are followers of Christ, life actually 
has a deeper meaning than occupation. Occupation is what someone does essentially to fundraise for their vocation, to live out their vocation. And what that vocation is, is their religious life, is growing closer to God, is, in the words of Jesus, being a part of the kingdom of God that is coming. And I, could, I would even say, go back to Abram, that I am blessed to be a blessing, that, that my life is not to be lived for what I can gain, but ultimately what I can give. So to me, that was the call from the very beginning was, I'm going to bless you, not so that you can have bigger barns and more cars and whatever, but I'm going to bless you so that you can then be a blessing to all the people you come in contact with, to the world, in essence. And I'm going to give you land, and I'm going to give you children so that you can spread my good news to the world. Um, you can be, once again, an evangelical. I'm not sure that's what he told Abram, but you know, yeah. maybe maybe he said that a lot. But time. it is good news. Yeah, it is good news. Such good news. And it's so different than anything else I think was probably happening at that time and anything different that's happening today. And so I work, I do, you know, we do what we are called to do, but only in the understanding and then within the story of God that says you are doing this so that you can then be a blessing to all the people you come in contact with. Ken Thompson has this uh, podcast called Things That Help. It's been really informing to me. It's been really enriching to me. And he talks about the meaning of life using the work of Richard Rohr. And one of the one of the, he has he has these five rules of life that he talks about, um, and one of the things that he says as a rule of life is that your life is not about you. And just you're talking about being a blessing brings that up in my mind. We have we have a problem with suicide sure. in our country in our church. We are raising young people who think that their life is about them primarily. And when they don't win, when they don't get the things in life that they are living for, that they are expecting for themselves, they lose all sense of meaning in their life. And this isn't just young people. I mean, this is, this is midlife crisis. This is older people as well. Uh, this is people who have been very, very successful because of some sort of physical attribute that as they get older and they age, their body doesn't function the way that they are and they lose all sense of meaning. But God does not call us to live for ourselves. Our physical and mental capabilities are not primarily for us, but they are, as you say, to be a, they're given to us that we might be a blessing to the world. I think that uh, something that helps, helps me try to understand, and a lot of times when I'm talking to teens about what do you want to do with your life? What 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 is what are you striving for? What you know? One of the first questions you ask a senior in high school: Where are you going to college? What what? And it, it all comes down to this. Once again, what we would perceive as that would be the natural step. That'd be the natural flow. I uh, had a guy who went to your college and came back to Paulding, and he's like, "I'm taking a year off, but I'm going back to college." And I just looked at him and said. I don't care if you ever go back to, you know, like, what, what is that to me? But he's right. he's living within a framework that you don't go to college for a year and then come back and just work at the, ha- you know, work at home for the rest of your life. I was like, I just want you to find meaning and purpose. Like, if you don't go back to college, like, it's no skin off my back. You need to be who you feel like God's calling you to be. All that to say, 
uh, we, we, we referenced him last time, but a guy named Shane Claiborne kind of has this line where he says, God's given you passions and dreams and desires. He's given you talents and he's given you gifts and he's given you abilities. And what it is for us to do as the people of God, what we really, where we really can try to understand what God has put us here for, our calling, vocation, is all those gifts, talents, dreams, where that intersects the world. That is maybe what you are, your vocation is here to do. It's true, you may be a school teacher, but maybe your passion is once again helping the generation, helping children learn to read, helping uh, be a, a positive influence, a positive role model in their life. And so where that intersects is maybe in the classroom, or maybe it's in a, a nonprofit that does after school program, you know, but, but you're, you're learning what, what, what really gets me up in the morning, what, what gets me fired up, what gets me out of bed. Now, how can I go use that to, to be a blessing to someone else? How, where, where can I see how that intersects with a need, a true need in the world? And not just be living life to get more and more and more, but to, to take those things that God has gifted me with and blessed me with and go make a difference in somebody's life that, uh, that, that will last a lifetime, an eternity, who knows? Yeah, I mean, in your example of that intersection, that occupation, the occupation as a teacher, is one that can be terminated at any time sure. by the choice of the principal, um, some sort of uh, something that happens, a family tragedy or something. That, that can be terminated. But what can't be is the vocation, that calling, that sense of person, purpose, that particular gifting. Jesus says uh, in, in the book of John, John chapter 10, I think he says, I have come that you might have life and have life abundantly. And where we've really gotten that passage wrong is by buying into uh, some sense of the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel that Jesus is saying if you come to me, somehow there's going to be some large payout. When Jesus says life more abundantly, he's not talking about financial blessings, but he's talking about a full understanding of meaning of life, a vibrancy. And I want to get out of bed and I can't help but get out of bed in the morning because there's a world in desperate need of the blessing that I am bringing to it. We've got the whole blessing thing just reversed. Right. That like, if I come to Jesus, I'm gonna get some sort of blessing. No, 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 no. When you come to Jesus, the world gets your blessing. Yeah, and what if the blessing that I get is when I'm giving? What if the blessing that I'm receiving is not that God's just gonna dump buckets of money or whatever into my life? The blessing that I am promised that as I am living life, as I am being and living into the very the very essence of who he's created me to be, um, the blessing is being a part of that plan. And and I had a in my master's program at Treveca a teacher who said, what we see on the cross that there's actually um, there's peace on the cross. And we were like, what are you talking about? It looks like the worst thing ever. And he's like, oh don't don't get me wrong. I'm not saying it would that Jesus didn't suffer. I'm not saying that Jesus didn't um, didn't have pain, physical pain. He says, but the peace comes was that he was doing what the Father had sent him to do. And that, that, that we may go through some difficult times. We may have some suffering in our lives. But there's, there, there comes a, a moment where we can say, I am giving, I am giving. And, and that person has a lot more than I do. But I am living into the design and the blessing and the reason that God has created me to, to give, to be a part of, and to value all of life no matter what form or no matter where I may interact with it, but I'm going to, to be a blessing to all people, no matter their, their race, color, uh, socioeconomic class, 
mental capability, um, physical capability. I'm going to look at all people and do whatever I can to be a blessing to all of them and see them as creatures that God has created. While I was at Chicago doing grad work, I had the opportunity to study under the Rabbi Michael Fishbane, which was an incredible privilege. And Fishbane uh, wrote a book that's definitely worth picking up, you can find it on Amazon, called Sacred Attunement. It's really uh, his theology um, put into a book. It's, it's really lovely. But what, what Fishbane says is that he says really the goal of the religious life or the hope of the religious life, what happens to one that comes into a relation, a vibrant relationship with God is that they become attuned to the world around them at a very heightened level where, where God is actually revealing continually uh, the needs of others, the nuances of situations, but attunement, attunement happens because of kenosis, because of Philippians 2, because of emptying of one's self. And we live in such a narcissistic age. We live in an age that would tell us that the greatest good that we can have in this life is to be personally gratified. But I think what Fishbane would push us to, and I think what Jesus would push us to, is the idea that fulfillment comes from self-emptying. That by, by, getting rid of, by getting rid of our selfish pursuits, by becoming humble enough to be attuned to the, to the person that we are, the person that God has created us to be, not aspiring to be all of these other things, but being humble enough to just look ourselves in the mirror and ask the question, who is it that God's created me to be? And then what does this situation need of me? The situation that I'm in right now. By, by living selflessly, by emptying oneself, that's where we can find true meaning, true purpose in living, true value. But, but we've got we've to disconnect in our priorities right now as the people of God in the 21st century. Yeah, and it, it really, as we're talking about how do we be present, how do we be where we are? How do we understand the self-emptying, not just when I go on a mission trip for seven days, but a life understanding of continual living who God wants me to be all the time. And, and it, when we were talking a little bit about the the chief end of man and is to glorify and worship him, a passage that, that kind of came to my mind and, and I think really hits on this is Romans 12, uh, 1 and 2, because it oh, talks yeah. about worship. It talks about yes. worship and glorifying God. And how do we glorify God? And what does that whole thing look like? It says this, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is true and proper worship. Yes. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And I think what this is really, really hinting at is as we don't conform our lives and our understanding of what the meaning of life is to the pattern of the world, 
We're going to go find those intersecting points with the world and what God has gifted us with and what God has, has blessed us with. And we're going to seek to use those to make other people's lives better or have meaning and not better in such a way that we have to take people once again. We're not, we're not praying for healing uh, all the time. We're praying that God would use people where they are, but we would intersect our lives to, to make, to give people that the rest of the world pushes to the outside. Like Jesus welcomed the blind and the lame and the children into the temple who weren't supposed to be there, that we might be a people who looks at all those people that the world has pushed aside and says, no, you have a place among my life because I want to bless your life the best way I know how. Well, and, and regarding meaning of, meaning of life, in the church, we're always asking the question, what's the will of God for me? What's the will of God for me? And what does Paul say here in Romans 12? He says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And as you're transformed by the renewing of your mind, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. But you're not going to be able to discern God's will for your life. You're not going to be able to test God's will for your life if you're trying to uh, grab your meaning of life from the priorities of the world. If you're going to find meaning in your life from God, you have to empty yourself of the priorities of this world. And that is primary for Paul's understanding of the Christ-like self. Yeah, I think even in chapter one, he talks about how they were worshiping the creation rather than the creator. Yes. And how because of this, he gave them over to the desires of their heart and and how a, a misplaced perception of who created me, of where my worship, my my sacrifice, my life is to be lived, uh, causes me to 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 search and to go after things. And and I think as we talked about at the beginning, God gave us that freedom of choice, that free will. And God says, that's what you want to worship. That's where you want your desires to be. Then he's going to allow us to, or to allow us to journey down that road, wherever it may take us, which uh, I think leads to, to destruction. I think Jesus talked about, there's two roads, a road that leads to life and a road that leads to, to destruction. And uh, if we desire if we want to worship that that success, if we want to worship that uh, how other people view us, then he's going to let us do that. Uh, but ultimately, it's going to leave us feeling unfulfilled. It's going to leave us feeling empty. It's going to leave us in a place where we're not living into the true desire uh, and the purpose that God created us to from the very beginning. I've got to tell you, that verse in Romans that God gave them over to their desires is one of the scariest verses in the Bible to me, and I'm being very sincere here, for when I have conversations of accountability with my mentors and counselors, often the question I ask of them when I'm talking about a particular moment in my life or a particular episode from my life, I ask them the question, do you think that's me giving myself to my desire or is this God's desire? Because I... I am very aware that I am influenced by the world in more ways than I can personally see all the time. I mean, this is, this is why we need Christian community to be redefining the meaning of life for us as individuals and as a collective, because we are so enculturated and it is really, really difficult for us objectively to 
to state what is of God and what's not. This is why David says, search my heart, oh God. Right. I don't trust myself to search myself. Right. You have to help me here. And I, I think as uh, I was reading an article uh, by a guy named Stanley Hauerwas, who teaches at Duke Divinity School, and he was trying to, in this article, talking about people that that have disabilities intellectually and how does the church, how do we handle, um, how do we allow them to be a part of who we are? And I think that as we gather as God's people, the way we have that accountability is even in our gatherings, even in those moments that we are getting together to center our lives around worship together or singing and, um, and Bible and communion. and communion and coming to the table. Something he says in the article really hit me is we have to allow people who can't talk as well in our midst to read scripture so that they can teach us that, that even as we are getting together, it then pushes me to understand that even outside of that hour, hour and a half, whatever the local context you, you may worship in meets the outside of that, uh, that we model what we believe God is calling us to, to live 24 seven. That if, 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 if the moments that we get to spend together as a community aren't something that is countercultural to what we're seeing. How are we forming our people to go be different in the world in which we live? And so he talks about how we need to slow down and that maybe people who are walking down to the communion table or the, the Lord's table, they maybe they can't walk or maybe it's going to take them a long time. And what we do is we don't try to rush them. We come alongside them and say, let me help you get there. Let me help you get there. Let me journey along with you, which will then hopefully transform my mind that when I see people in my community, Monday through Saturday, it causes me to think differently about them because of how my community is forming me when we're together as the body. When I, when I used to live on a college campus and I was working with college students, I'd often have conversations with kids that were having serious existential crisis and that were just breaking down, that were losing all sense of meaning, that were learning new things, they're physically developing in new ways. And in some of those conversations... I would suggest to college students, you know, if you want a new perspective on the meaning of your life, uh, we have a nursing home right down the street from campus here. Maybe you should go visit with, and I would give them the name of an elderly person to just go sit with, and maybe someone who was dying, but someone who could engage in a conversation with them. And, um, or, or in some situations, a person that maybe couldn't engage so well in a conversation with them. And you know what? A lot of those students, a majority of those students would not take me up on that offer. They were too obsessed with the presentness of their own existential crisis that they couldn't look beyond their narcissistic bubble to go and grapple with the meaning of life with somebody else. But those that took me up on that offer, they would call me later. And just say, hey, you know what? I've, I've just had a complete reorienting of my self-understanding of the meaning and the purpose of my life just by virtue of that conversation. And that's what community does for us. That's, that's what being with people who are different than us, that's, that's, what, that's what transforming Christian community looks like. It's a reorienting of our self-understanding that only comes through interaction, not through isolation, through selfless interaction, which is really, I mean, from the beginning, it's the way that God 
at least as we understand creation, how he set this up. Yeah. A s- series of selfless interactions. I'd have teens come back sometimes and say, man, I just can't get into worship anymore, which they were referring to music. And um, man, when I was a teen, like it was just awesome. Man, it just spoke to me. And um, what do I need to do? <laughs> how do I get back to that point? And I would even push them a little further. I'd say, um, go down to the homeless shelter sit with those people for a while and um, just get some perspective on life a little bit. And, and what you might, what you might find is because then when you come into church, you might have a little different perspective on the whole thing altogether, which might help you in ways that you never uh, imagined, which kind of goes back to even what we talked about last week when I was, when I was sick, he helped me when I was a stranger, he invited me in when I was, homeless you you gave me a place to sleep when I was thirsty you gave me something to drink that's where we find Jesus that's where we find the essence and I think as we are talking about that's where we find our true vocation as well we don't talk directly to our listener very often but I wonder if you might be listening to this podcast today struggling with a sense of identity wondering what is the meaning of your life And if that's you, we want to encourage you. We want to bless you today. We want to remind you that you you didn't have anything to do with bringing yourself into existence. Your life, life, regardless of of your habits, of things that have happened to you that were out of your control, of decisions that you made that were in your control, regardless of all of the baggage that you may carry, you were uniquely, fearfully, and wonderfully made by a creator who simply wanted to bring you into being, who wanted you to experience the beauty of this life. And our our prayer is that you do find a sense of divine vocation. Um, God has created you uniquely with significant gifts at a particular time in history, and your life has intrinsic value intrinsic meaning. You're a person filled with beauty and dignity. And I hope that, I hope that, you, uh, that you wrestle with the nature of the meaning of life and that the Spirit of God speaks to you uh, and gives you really inspiration and fullness in your life and in your self-understanding. If you want to connect with us online on Twitter, um, my handle is Jonathan Berkey, J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N-B-U-R-K-E-Y. And you can find me at Thompson7Jeremy. The Evangelicals podcast is recorded at Lima Community Church of the Nazarene in Lima, Ohio. And is produced by Isaac Smith. <laughs>